This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. In this new exciting world of Prairie Prophets, no one I have come across has a deeper affinity for prairie habitat than Carol Davitt, the executive director of the Missouri Prairie Foundation. She's really central to this story because Rudy talks about his time on the board of directors of the Prairie Foundation as instrumental in building the vision of Horizon 2. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, so we've known each other for quite a while. I've watched your zeal for Prairie over time. It is not fading. You are an absolute dynamo in the Prairie world. What is it about this habitat that is so special to you? Well, it's just an incredible story. And so much of our really our American identity and our culture and our economy are really tied up with prairie. If you really think about it, prairie is a, it's a North American landscape. It's like none other in the world. Here in Missouri, the prairie soils that we have, in not just in Missouri, but other parts of the prairie region, are what build the agriculture powerhouse that, that the United States is. All of that, those prairie roots growing and decaying over thousands of years made this incredible soil. And so if you think about, you know, direct agricultural products in our country, but then all of the businesses, you know, around agriculture and how many people those employ, I mean, that all goes back to prairie. And then if you think about, you know, the wildlife and the openness and, you know, early pioneers, Euro-American pioneers you came across, I mean, it was, it was this landscape to, to get across and, and people were in awe of it, but people were also afraid of it. Then if you think about the thousands of years that native nations were here really shaping the landscape and it's, it's thanks in Missouri to the Osage and their ancestors who really, you know, through their use of fire really expanded and maintained prairie you know, it's just an incredible story. And and then coupled with that, that now we have so little left and we're really in a race against time to save these original unplowed prairies that we can. And knowing that those prairie seeds and microorganisms in the soil of prairies can really help address a lot of environmental challenges that we have today, yet we have so little of it left. I mean, this is just really a compelling topic and a compelling issue to work on. And then I'll also add the number of passionate people, people who are really dedicated to protecting prairie and learning about it. For example, the Missouri Prairie Foundation Board of Directors are incredible people. This goes back to when the organization was founded in 1966. And today, you know, all through this time, our 57-year history here today in, in 2023, I mean, these people give so much as volunteers and our staff as well. So it's just an incredible career. You know, we depend on the natural world for our survival. Why shouldn't we all be engaged? You know, I don't I don't know that I'm that much of really an exception. I think there's a lot of people who care about the natural world, but I would sure like to see a lot more. I think you're an exception in the sense that in your role, you're motivated by those volunteers and and by those members of your organization. I've, I've sat in that seat. I know what it's like to be paid staff at a nonprofit. How do those folks who give of their time and give of their money, how do they motivate you to keep moving the mission forward? You know, 
when we're able to, you know, raise funds and buy land, I mean, that's wonderful. You know, that's a great feeling. But something that I think really motivates me is being able to create these experiences for people where they become engaged and they find a love of prairie. I've seen people fall in love with prairie and to find, you know, to help to help our staff grow in their careers and then watch our, our volunteers, you know, going out on, you know, more than a dozen prairie burns in a season or, or more, you know, to help with our prescribed fire, for example, or collect seed. It's just really wonderful to help be a part of that and help cultivate this community of people. So that motivates me, just being able to help play a role in that and then, you know, be part of it. One of the miracles of prairie is the deep, complex root structures. We talk about all the benefits those roots provide in soil health, water filtration, so many other aspects of our our natural world. But on a little play on words, your roots run really deep in prairie. Talk about your unique childhood and, and how you came by this zeal, honestly. Well, I like to think that I was the luckiest kid in the world because I got to grow up on the grounds of a nature reserve. Uh, Shaw Nature Reserve. It's in Gray Summit, Missouri. It belongs to the Missouri Botanical Garden. And it's about 2,400 acres. And there were several farmhouses on the property because the property was purchased in the 1920s by, you know, purchasing several farms that were, you know, together in in an area. And, And those parcels of farmland had farmhouses on them. So I grew up in one of those houses and my parents worked there. And my dad in 1979, 1980, and my mother too, worked uh, to collect native prairie seeds from going along railroads where you would find strips of unplowed prairie along, you know, when the railroads were laid that they weren't plowing that land. So you can still find these little vestiges of prairie plants. So they were collecting seeds. They were learning from other people, especially in Illinois and Wisconsin, where there's been, you know, a longer history of prairie reconstruction than even in Missouri. They worked on developing a prairie planting at Shaw Nature Reserve to help people in eastern Missouri get an idea of what their prairie legacy looked like. So it's a planting. It's not an original unplowed prairie, but it certainly gives people an idea of what once vast prairies would have looked like. So I was in the, you know, I grew up in the 70s and that was a time when, you know, you, you ran outside and you stayed out as long as you possibly could and you didn't have parents hanging over you. And I think that is so important. It's not important for kids to know about invasive plants or endangered species or to know the names of things. It's important for them to experience it for themselves. Feeling dirt on bare feet and crawling around in the grass or in the woods and really f- being in being comfortable outside and and developing a love for it I think that's the most important thing for kids and then as they grow up they maintain that attachment to the natural world and then they can learn more about things you know as they become teenagers and older so so I had that foundation as a kid and then I went on to study biology as one of my areas of study and then I just kept learning and learning and learning and I want to emphasize that even though I grew up on, on a nature reserve, there were still so many things I didn't learn about the natural world until I was in college and then met my husband, who's an ecologist, and working with my colleagues. And just every day I learned something new, which is a testament to how complex the natural world is and how anybody can be bored in this world is <laughs> just beyond me because the natural world is just incredibly fascinating and fulfilling and satisfying. 
I read an article recently in Garden and Gun magazine by Edward Nickens, T. Eddie Nickens. He's a, a great outdoor writer, and he talked about plant natives for wildlife benefits. Now, at Raceline and Horizon 2, we talk about you know, making energy from prairie, which we'll discuss, the ecological benefits that we've touched on. But how does having prairie benefit wildlife? Well, if we look at, you know, the hundreds of thousands of acres or millions of acres of prairie that we had in Central North America, those prairies were supporting huge herds of bison and elk and, you know, large mammals and then many, many grassland bird species, prairie grouse, I mean, on and on and on, not to mention hundreds of species of native bees and butterflies and on and on and on. And so today, of course, we, that original unplowed prairie is vastly reduced For example, in Missouri, we had 15 million acres of prairie up until the time of statehood, and now we have less than 45,000 scattered intact prairie acres. Now, those acres, it's harder for them to support, you know, large animals like bison, but they're still incredibly important for many other species. And some species, we don't entirely know why, will be found only on original unpelled prairies and not prairie plantings. For example, there's a bee called the blue sage bee, and it it forages on pollen only from the blue sage plant, only on original prairies. Like if you plant blue sage in your yard, you're not going to find that bee. The only time it's been found other than on original prairie is on a prairie planting next to an original prairie remnant. However, it doesn't mean that we can't restore a lot of the ecological function of prairie by planting prairie plants. And there are many animals, many species of wildlife that will benefit from prairie plantings. Bison, for example, if they have a large enough area, you know, of prairie plantings, they can do well. Same thing with many grassland birds, many insects, many mammals, but there are, you know, there are few species that you'll find only on original unplowed prairie, but there are plenty of others that will do well on prairie plantings. It's really amazing to watch the bison at Dunn Ranch Prairie in North Missouri and also over at the Kankakee Sands on the Nature Conservancy's property in northern Indiana. Uh, When you stand there and and watch them in their native habitat, it's really just majestic. And you mentioned elk. You know, it was expansion that pushed elk into the mountains. Elk were native to the prairies and the plains. To see them back on the prairies and plains sure would be neat too. It would, it would. I do want to emphasize though that, you know, I think we tend to think of prairies as these big expanses and for a while, small intact prairie remnants were kind of disregarded, even by some conservationists is not really worthwhile to save. But there was a study looking at, at native biodiversity on remnant habitats. It was published in 2018 by the National Academy of Sciences, and they looked at the amount of, of species diversity. There was an inordinate amount on small remnant communities. So, you know, just because you have a 10,000-acre area and it's tall fescue, you know, or maybe a few species of native plants that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have as many species as even a 100 or a 50-acre original prairie. One of the prairies that the Missouri Prairie Foundation owns, it's called Pennsylvania Prairie. It's 160 acres. And we hired botanists to do an in-depth botanical survey of the prairie. And they put out random 
plots, like about 20 by 20 inch square, a frame, like putting a, a picture frame down on, on the ground. And in, in a 20 by 20 inch frame, they found 46 native plant species. I mean, we couldn't even plant 46 plants within that space. Yet over these thousands of years of evolution, these plants have sort of worked things out evolutionarily to, to coexist like that. So that actually broke a world record for, for plant species diversity on that scale. And of course, there are many other species that are depending on those plants. There are native bees foraging for pollen or other insects for nectar. There are animals that are eating those plants. So just because an original prairie remnant is small doesn't mean it's no less worthy of our protection. For example, suppose we had a, there was a, a Monet painting that was three by five feet and went, oh, wow, that's great. That's a nice big painting. And then we found a 12 by 12 inch painting by Monet and we thought, you know what, let's just get rid of that. We wouldn't do that no. because it's a masterpiece and it's irreplaceable. So I feel that we need to, to think about our natural systems in the same way. You know, I recently broke the bonds of a homeowners association that had written into the rules that one's grass must be manicured to a certain level. I hope to never be under those sort of restrictions again. Let's talk about prairie restoration and those smaller plots, because if you, like me, would rather be paddling a river on Saturday or golfing on Sunday than mowing grass, a monoculture that doesn't belong there in the first place, you could plant a native prairie in your acre, two acre, three acre yard and have incredible benefits for pollinators, birds, other ground nesting animals. What would someone do to even begin the process of putting some of their land into prairie? Sure. And I, I do want to make the distinction between these small you know, remnant original habitats. Those are irreplaceable. But yes, you can plant prairie plants on an acre or less. Um, I live in the city of Jefferson City and I have a, a prairie garden along my driveway. I have a sign that says these plants provide for pollinating insects. So your neighbors don't think they're weeds. They don't have a problem with it. In fact, they stop. <laughs> I, I once gave some seeds to somebody else. I don't think it's the fact that plants are native that people might have a problem with. It's that they want to know that the plants are intentional and that they are being managed or stewarded. We certainly don't advocate for throwing seeds out and walking away. Um, just like any other kind of landscape, if you landscape with native plants, um, if you have a seeded landscape, like an acre or a half acre of a prairie planting that you start with seeds, you still need to do stewardship there. But yeah, you're not going to be out there mowing it every every week. So we are very fortunate in Missouri and the Midwest as well to have many native seed producers and native landscape uh, garden centers and, and nurseries that specialize in native plants. So what these seed producers do is they actually collect seed from original prairie remnants, and they might have production fields as well. And then um, they have to clean those seeds. Many of them sell seeds as single species or mixes, like if you have dry, rocky soil or if you have moister soil. You can buy different seed mixes. You can buy seed mixes that have more grasses in them. For example, maybe you want to, you have cattle and you want to graze them on native grasses. Some mixes might have more wildflowers if you were especially interested in supporting pollinators, for example. So what you would do is you would need to make sure that you have eliminated the existing non-native vegetation. So if you have, say, an acre of fescue, tall fescue, or other turf grass, 
you need to kill that. You can do it either by, if it's a small enough area, you can, you can put plastic down and weight it down and wait a couple of months for that existing vegetation to die. Or you can use herbicide like glyphosate to spray it out. Um, you need to make sure that is eliminated. And then you do not want to till that soil up because when you do that, you'll destroy the soil structure and you'll just make it a blank slate for weed seeds. As long as you have bare soil, the seed needs to come in contact with bare soil. You want to seed in the dormant part of the year. You want to seed between December and early March because prairie wildflower seed needs to go through a cold cycle. That cold will help break the dormancy. It'll help break down the seed coat so that the seeds can germinate. And then around April, you're going to see, even if you don't till up the ground, you're going to see a lot of annual weeds like ragweed, mare's tail, you might have foxtail grass. A lot of those are native, but they are, they're weedy. And they're going to compete with your little tiny prairie seedlings for sunlight and water and nutrients. So what you want to do is you want to mow that planting high about six inches high so that you're removing those taller annual weeds that grow really quickly. You're going to remove that so sunlight can get down to those smaller prairie seedlings. Sometimes people say, oh, well, prairie plants are so slow to establish. It's not really true. They are mostly all perennial plants, which means they live year after year after year. And to live year after year after year, you need to invest in your roots because your roots are your bank, if you will. They're your livelihood to get nutrients and water out of the soil. So these little prairie seedlings might be, you know, just a few inches tall the first, you know, that first spring after you seed, whereas your annual weeds might be two or three feet tall. So you need to remove a lot of that biomass of that weedy stuff. And you want to mow like two or three times that spring. So sunlight's getting down to those smaller prairie plants. The second year, you're still going to have some weeds. Just mow as high as you can. And by the third year, you should be seeing fewer weeds, markedly fewer weeds, prairie plants blooming. Some will even bloom the second year. Sometimes they'll even bloom the first year. And then by the third year, you should be able to do a prairie burn if you're in a situation where you can actually burn. So prairie is this ecosystem that evolved over thousands of years. You can't expect to just throw seeds out and boom, you're going to have this mature prairie planting the first year. But it's it's really important to keep after that mowing, reducing that annual weed competition that first season. You talked about stewardship, another word for managing your prairie. If you plant it, it's not just going to always be perfect. I've learned from Frank Oberly and and you and others that you got to defend the prairie because there's non-natives that are going to try to just drift on in there. A bird could carry seeds in. You could carry seeds in on your boots. Unfortunately, on, on, on my property, and that's the benefit of being the host of the podcast, is I hope everybody's gra- gathering information that they can learn from, but I get to ask specific questions <laughs> to help me. I've got Cerecia lespediza. Bad. What do I do about it? So Cerecia lespediza, it's a, it's a non-native invasive lespediza. We do have native lespedizas too, but you're right. For Cerecia lespediza is really bad. It's very tenacious. And it can set so many seed, produce so many seeds, and those seeds can be viable in the in the soil for a very long time. So, are you saying you have it? You have Cerecia lespediza in an existing prairie planting? Are you 
To be more specific, I have uh, about five acres through the middle of agriculture fields that currently is in just grass. Locust trees that have to come out, cerecia that has to come out. There's definitely some some nice prairie plants in there as well. There's some big blue stem. I don't know if it just came up natural. There's milkweeds. Uh, I've had quite a few plants identified that I want to keep. But I still have to go through the whole little five acres because before I do my 20 acre planting, I want as much of that non-native competition gone. Yes. So to preface my response to that, just want to make it clear, when I was speaking about mowing high, those annual weeds, I was talking about weedy annual stuff, but it's native. So it's it's not such a problem. Cerecia, though, these invasive non-native things, those are much more difficult to deal with because they're perennial too, is another issue. So if you had a, if, if you had a solid, if it was just solid cerecia, in a way that's kind of easier because that's kind of where I'm at. You could you could plow it and plant soybeans or corn if it's Roundup ready. Then you can use herbicide, and that's going to kill other you know weeds. And then you sort of prepped it for your native seed planting. And I know some people might think, "Gosh, why is she you know why is she talking about using herbicide?" But when we're talking about preserving native biodiversity or uh, reconstructing native plantings, herbicide is really an important tool. And when you're doing, when you're talking about prairie work, you're not talking about using, you know, as much as we would use every year in, you know, a row crop. So it really is an effective tool, especially, you know, we have these original prairies that, um, you know, hundreds of acres that were just spot treating invasives. We're not using very much of it, but if we didn't use it, it could be they could become more invasive. They would displace native species and native bees and other things that depend on the na- those native plants are going to decline. So herbicide is very a very useful tool. So if you had to, to back to your situation, Brandon, if you had solid non-natives, you know, invasives, you could spray them all out. Don't just till it because that's not necessarily going to kill them. You want to, you could, you know, spray them all out, plant a row crop if it's a big enough area, and then just sort of get a clean slate. If you have desirable natives mixed in with cerecia, you need to spot treat that with herbicide that's appropriate to that kind of plant. And you want to do it before it sets seed. So you want to do that June, July, and then it's going to start setting seed after that. You can also, if you don't have, if you run out of time to spray it, at least mow it so it's not going to set seed. Now, when you mow it, yeah, you're going to be mowing down your desirable natives too. You know, you don't want any, another year of seed set on your invasive. Now, the other thing is that fire also stimulates the plant to grow, which is a problematic, although you can burn. And then when the plants, they're going to come back, you know, vigorously, then you can spray them. So you're, you'll, you'll fire will encourage germination of the cerecia, and then you can treat it. That might sound sort of counter counterproductive, but you want to get rid of all those cerecia seeds in the soil. One thing that we do, and that I would recommend anybody who has, you know, especially a larger planting, if you have contractors working on your land and doing this you know, doing invasement treatment for you or whatever, make sure they clean off all of their equipment with air pressure before entering your land to avoid bringing in invasive plant seeds. 
So mowers, tractors, UTVs, anything like that, you want to be really careful because that's a way that weed seeds can travel. Tell people more about the Missouri Prairie Foundation. I would be happy to. Thanks for asking. The Missouri Prairie Foundation is a nonprofit, 501c3, private, non-governmental organization. It was founded in 1966, actually by biologists with the Conservation Department and other citizens who were concerned with the loss of prairie. We saw, our country saw a, a dramatic increase in the loss of prairie following World War II. Of course, this was starting, you know, statehood and, you know, with the invention of the, or, or the refinements to the steel plow. But then it was, you'd see, you'd saw a lot of accelerated prairie loss following World War II. So um, there was just less and less prairie in our state. And these individuals felt that we needed, an, the, the state needed an organization dedicated to, you know, specifically prairie. And so up until 1998, it was an all-volunteer organization. And then in 98, the organization hired its first um, prairie manager. Its first prairie that it purchased was Friendly Prairie in Pettis County, Missouri. In 1969, it was, it's 40 acres and it cost $10,000. Those were the days. <laughs> that prairie remains one of the most biologically rich prairies in the state. Since the early years of the organization, which is uh, overseen by a fantastic volunteer board of directors, we have grown to acquire now 32 properties, totaling over 4,400 acres, and they are some of the most biologically rich um, prairies in the state. We also work with partners to help protect thousands of other acres. Um, we work. We have cooperative agreements with the Missouri Department of Conservation. We help. We oversee some contracts for invasive plant control, for example, on some conservation department prairies. We work with private landowners. We work on statewide initiatives like uh, Missourians for for monarchs and pollinators. We do a lot of advocacy work um, to protect our state funding in our state for conservation and the way our um, conservation um, department is structured. We advocate for that because it works really well in our state. We also run the Grow Native program. It's a 23-year-old native plant marketing and education program uh, that encourages the use of native plants for all of the benefits that we've been talking about. So we, the Grow Native program, uh, we do a lot of consumer education to help drive demand for native plants and seeds, shrubs and trees. And we have a professional uh, member element to the program as well. We have over 180 professional members who sell native seed or they are landscape designers or architects or they um, install native landscaping for folks. We do uh, lots of education. We've produced the Missouri Prairie Journal. It's a, a magazine about prairie ecology. We've been doing that since 1979. We're a statewide organization. We have only five staff. So we are uh, really busy, and, but everybody involved is so passionate about our work. We have wonderful supporters, wonderful donors that help us protect prairie, purchase it, and steward it year-round, provide lots of educational opportunities, so it's a, uh, it's a wonderful organization. Look up the Missouri Prairie Foundation online. Carol Davitt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Brandon. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler. 